ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. Brought to you by Take-Two Custom Tees. Screen printing experience that is dedicated to quality and customer service every time. Joe Bird, how are you? Oh, Lenny, if I was even better, I couldn't stand it. Well, that's awesome. Hey, I want to thank you so much for taking some time with ATV Talk. And I really appreciate it. I know how busy you are. Um, you can tell me all about that. Tell, tell the listeners all about that here um, in just a minute. Um, but I really appreciate you taking the time with us. I really do. Yeah, it's great being here, Lenny. So, Joe, let's, uh, let's dive into the old portion of your, um, the start of your racing career, all the way back into the three-wheeler days. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so it's like in uh, 82, I started riding three-wheelers. And, uh, you know, at the time, it was the sport was just now getting kicked off. You know, you had your Jimmy Whites and Marty Hartz and Dean Sundals and watching all, all these guys, you know, and I'm like, they're all my heroes. So we started back in the day. Heck, I think uh, one, uh, 82, 110, my dad had him a, a 185S. And so, you know, here we go. Now we're, we're I'm still in my sister's closet doors, putting on hay bales, making jumps back then. And then um, I think the first real three-wheeler I had to race one was a 1984 200X three-wheeler. And so that um, that went on for well, – I started racing that. My first race, I went to the track. I was all excited. I actually rolled in the back of the pickup truck. I get there, and I see all these three-wheelers going up and down the hills and the jumps. And, oh, my God, I thought I was going to piss my pants. I was so nervous. I looked at my <laughs> mom and dad, and I said uh, – um, you know, if y'all don't want me to race, I, I I don't have to. You know, I was just nervous, and I was like, I was trying to back out of it. My dad's like, oh, hell no. We're going to come all the way down here. We're racing. And I got about third <laughs> lap in practice, man, just from that point on, you know, just fell in love with it. So That's that's awesome. That's so awesome. You know, but the tracks back then, the, the, the tracks back then are totally different than what we have now because I've, I've got a TPC trike that has this big board stroker 450 engine on it. It's the baddest thing you've ever seen as far as three-wheelers. And I went, rode my track on it here, I don't know, last year, I guess, just for fun. I'm like, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever, think I've ever done because we were racing, you know, 20 horsepower at best to 35 horsepower 250Rs. And this thing's got 70 horsepower. And the jumps we're doing today compared to what, you know, we were doing back in the 80s is, you know, we were like basically TT and flat tracking back then compared to what they're doing now. So big difference, big difference. So you still like to ride three wheelers? No, <laughs> no. I enjoy pit riding three wheelers and have a conversational piece because I think they're cool and that's what's got me started. But you know, after racing for thirty three, almost thirty four years, and you know, going from you know just like I said, stealing my sister's closet doors to jump hay bales with, to jumping hundred plus foot doubles and triples, and you know, throwing in a turn sideways at seventy eight, whatever you're doing you know, evolve into that and try to go back and do, I mean, 20% on a three-wheeler, you're like, you're going to be upside down. So, you know, they're fun to just have a conversation piece and cruise around with the guys, but no, I do not, I don't miss riding them at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of expected that answer, but yeah, uh, we do, we still do work on the, the two of the R's and it's probably the worst machine for me to have to test ride 
because I used to be able to spin them around on the asphalt and do all kinds of, you get out of it because you haven't ridden as many in so long. Yeah. And everything's developed and changed and different. And just, you know, a lot of things we were doing the three wheels. I remember one time from a bus stop to where my house is, we lived at the time on a gravel road and I used to go out there and do donuts. I did like 300 donuts all down that road just because that's the thing to do on a three-wheeler. And the next day, my school bus driver was madder than hell at me because who did, you know, she know who did. I did, of course, I never owned up to it, but that's the crazy things we do. We do all kinds of donuts and, and who, who can't remember riding wheelies on those 200Xs and 250SXs and all that stuff forever. You didn't quite do that much stuff on the, on the quads compared to three-wheelers. Yeah, it wasn't, the, the, the quads weren't, uh, what was the big deal about doing a, th- a wheelie on a quad? It was, right. That's what you did on three-wheelers. Yep. Yep. I remember Man, who was that? Uh, Doug DeMocos, the three-wheeler king back in the day. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, a lot of, you know, I still got some three-wheelers. I think I sent you some pictures. I still got 200 X's, 250 R's. I got the TPC. You know, I still got a few. And and uh, and they're going to hang up in the garage right where they're at right now forever, probably. <laughs> That's crazy. I know. I've seen those pictures you sent me. That garage, I could spend, you know, the rest of my life hanging out in there just checking <laughs> stuff out. It's definitely a conversational garage. I built it, uh, I think we finished it up mm, 10 years ago, nine years ago, whatever we finished it up. And I built it just because I knew someday I would be done. I want to have all these bikes I look back up at. And I kept, I wish I could have kept way more, but at the time, you know, you're trying to make a living. You're not, I don't need, a, you know, Honda's giving me, you know, 10, 12 bikes a year. And I don't, you know, one year they give me 30 just because I signed a three-year contract. I'm like, what in the heck we're going to put 30 stock folders? Well, now I wish I had them back. <laughs> so, right. I, I believe so. So I, I got to ask you this: you're not a you're not a little guy. You're you're, you're pretty big. So, I mean, bigger now. Well, I've gained some weight since I retired. Imagine that. Well, I wonder why, right? <laughs> you know, you don't realize how much you know. ATV motocross racing is the most physically sport in the world at a professional level. Okay, so I've done all the studying and training. Went to school for exercise physiology, the whole nine yards, and. Motocross, Supercross are rated number one, but, you know, they don't go down to the quads, but we all know quads are harder driving a dirt bike. They'll never admit it, but it's the most physical manning sport. We would train five days a week, and you just look for those days off because you're just beat the crap. You know, you're hurting all over. And, you know, the cross training, you had to do that just to maintain some of the injuries, you know, and you got to cross train. And you don't realize, you know, even in the last few years, I'm in my 40s going, you know, how much am I actually training? You know, I'm sure I can quit and not gain much weight, you know. And that's not the case. <laughs> you forget how much that actually, how many calories you're burning when you're doing motos. Right. Have you, have you modified your diet a lot since you quit racing? I had to. Yeah, actually, I, I, I've had to do it a couple of times. Like I said, I've, I've been doing it for almost 40 years racing, almost professional for 33. And, you know, when I first started, I mean, you just eat, do whatever. You didn't even, it, it didn't even cross your mind, you know, until you started, I started studying it. And then I got my, I guess my mid thirties, I noticed just a little bit of, you know, my, uh, some things would change, but man, it seemed like the day I turned 40, everything went to shit. <laughs> like, Oh crap. I got to eat this way. I can't do this. I got to train this way. You know, cause I was trying to eat and train exactly the same in my early forties as I was in my mid thirties when I was winning everything. And it didn't, it didn't work the same. Your body just changes and it, not necessarily for the worst, but as an athlete, you can say it's for the worst, but just, it just changes. So you can't, eat the same foods and you're now you're all of a sudden you're allergic to this and and all of a sudden you like this green shit over here you know so you want to live longer and, and your training 
you know, I, I was used to go out and do three 35 minute motos a day, you know, motocross, get off, run two miles and do, do all my cross training that I, you know, I have always done. And then when I get my forties, I'm like, can I take about an hour rest in between, you know? And like, when I get up the next day, I'm like, man, I don't feel like getting up and running all these miles and doing, you know, I'd push my quad up the driveway. I'd pull it around the track and all this stuff. I'm like, man, I just, maybe I'll skip that today and I'll just ride, you know? So I'd stop doing as much cross training in my forties and just focus on the riding because, you know, when you start wearing yourself out and tearing your muscles down, we don't recover as fast in our forties as we did in our thirties, even in our twenties. So I had to change my, my diet, you know, quite a bit, but my training a lot because I was just started, I was just worn out when I got to the racetrack. So, you know, I'd start, there'd be some weeks I wouldn't ride past Monday. You know, I used to be like riding, riding Wednesday, you leave Thursday, you get there Friday for practice. And now it's like, man, if I, if I could take off maybe Sunday and race the next Sunday, I'd be pretty good. <laughs> so when you were younger and you were riding the 250R stuff, because size and weight was such a bigger deal, I think, on the two-stroke days yep. than, 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 than the four-strokes. How crazy did your diet get to – I mean, you were racing against guys like Shane Hitt that weighed a buck 40 soaking wet. With chains in his pocket. <laughs> and that – I never won a TT race. You know, back in the day, you've been there. We, we had to run motocross and TT up to 2002, and then after that, they split it. So I never won a TT race. I don't, I don't even know if I won a heat race. I think I got second, my best finish ever, and that was probably my only top three. I don't know. But the motocross, it definitely hurt me on the starts and coming out of the turns. But because I was trained so hard, I, I, you know, about halfway through the moto, I started picking them back off. Never pulled the whole shot. Never did very good at all in the starts. And guys like Shane Head and these smaller guys would, would just kill me. You know, I'm like, man, what I got to do? Well, every seven pounds of horsepower, give or take. And, you know, hell, I'm – I was always been over 200 pound rider and I'm six, five and the leverage is hard on the suspension. You just, you know, it's just a nightmare. So you're perfect. The pilot, you're perfect. ATV racer is going to be five, nine, five, 10. That's just what everything's built around and 145, 165, 70 pounds. That's, that's where the winners were. And I did not fit that mode. And that's why I never started winning or pulling hole shots until I got on the four stroke. So the blessing for your career was the four stroke. Absolutely, yeah. And I, you know, I won some some motocross races on two. We got, I think, a little one little a couple of times, maybe Red Bud, but that was just like, you know, everything had to be perfect, you know, and I had to maybe the good guys got a bad start or something, you know. I, but uh, not very many. So when I, I mean, as soon as we got on four strokes, you know, now your your torques at double what the two strokes were, your horsepower is a little more, you know, everything just, you know, the more horsepower you have, the less that weight matters. And then the straight ahead drive. On a four-stroke versus a two-stroke is incredible. Right. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. I rolled my two-stroke. You know, like my last legger roll bike, I, I, I hung up. Right before I, ro I hung it up, I rolled it. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I'm just, like, dancing on the clutch all the way around the track. You know, this thing has no power compared to what now. But it handled as good or better what, what we're racing now. You know, those 250Rs, man, they, you know, you put those roll actors on there, you know, those things, or, or the wash, full wash chassis, you know, those things would really, all, you know, handle that's why they started putting the CRF engines in those two PDR chassis. Now we had some. Right. Do you think, do you think outlawing the hybrid uh, helped us or hurt us? Oh, at the time it definitely helped us because the manufacturers were never going to support hybrids and they still won't, you know? So when Honda came out, when Suzuki opened the door was coming out with their new bike. And then, you know, of course, Yamaha's, you know, everybody starts to follow and, 
making it production rules. Now we had to, you know, go eleventh hour and try to figure out how to make these things work because they're not motocross bikes compared to what were these hybrids. But we did, and you make sacrifices when I'm getting a big paycheck in the mail and I'm getting all these free bikes and parts. Then okay, I'll, I'll, <laughs> it doesn't bother you a bit. You make things work, you know. So I think it was a, you know, get rid of the splitting the series, going from motocross to TT, and and making it a production completely grew the sport i mean look how fast it grew from 2002 three to 2005 six seven i mean you go from making dump truck driver money to rock star money from having 400 entries to having almost a thousand red lands it, it was definitely a right you think it was the right move then i do absolutely okay let me ask you this because you've been around so long do you think that the knowledge that you gained over all those years racing allowed you the benefit of to be a better rider in your mid to late thirties, which allowed you to make the championship runs where in your earlier days you would have struggled for whatever reason. Well, yeah, just having the experience, you know, there's no substitute for, you know, experience like that. And, and you know, what would really, I, my opinion, help, help me is doing motocross and TT and cross country and the Mickey Thompson Stadium Series and, and all my riding schools. Because I, the first thing I do in my riding schools is I'll teach people how to set up a front end, you know, how to, how to check ride height, how to, what kind of air pressure to run and, you know, what, what compression and rebound and preload is on a shot. Most people don't even, you know, so learning how to set up a bike for TT and, of course, that naturally goes over to motocross and just learning all the genres of, of racing definitely made me a better rider. And so as I got older, I didn't have to ride any faster. I had to ride smarter and maybe make, make sure myself dialed in better. And I'd always watch, you know, all these other guys, you know, these other top riders and seeing what they're doing and, you know, going around, peeking around and see what, you know, just being nose in. And somebody's always got something better than you. Somebody's bikes are always better. Maybe they got a better line, whatever it is. So just learning to be a probably kept me or led me to, to race another five, six, seven, eight years over the next guy. So what, what basically I'm getting at is if you look at all of the great champions that we've had in our industry, going even back into some of the 250R days, if you look at their ages, the older you are, most of the champions in the ATV world are in their 30s. There's right. been phenoms, you know, Joel and Jeremiah, where they came in in their 20s and, and won some championships. But if you look overall, you go back to the Denton days, nobody really realized how old Gary was when he was winning. Right. Right. Well, I think, you know, unlike the dirt bikes, you know, we can't start and have any kind of career until you get a little bit older. You know, it's, it's so much more expensive. So it takes away a lot of the youngsters, you know, that really want to focus on, on doing it. You know, in a dirt bike, you know, it's a whole lot cheaper to get going and, and everybody's doing it. So with us, it takes a little longer. And a lot of times, mom and dad don't have quite the money that the dirt bikes, you know, it takes a lot more. You got to have two bikes. You got to have a big rig. You got to have all this stuff to pull the stuff in. So it takes a little, maybe a little more effort. It takes a little longer to get there than, than what it would on a dirt bike. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a huge cost over a dirt bike. You know, you can yeah. go buy a brand new dirt bike for, what, eight, nine, ten grand. Um, and, and basically take it to the motocross track and start riding. Right. Where you, there's not a quad ever been made that I think you can do that to. <laughs> not be competitive. <laughs> no, I mean, the Yamahas, you know, the Yamaha Suzuki out of the box, if you're going to go out, a pro rider can take it and go out and do good in the C-Class and just have fun and go practice with it. Because I've, I've done that before, just to have something, 
you know, we'll go to Florida for the winter and just take a stock bike down there. But you're not going to be competitive in anything fast, but you can definitely take it out there, throw some wheels and tires on it, and let's go have some fun. But back in the day, you know, we had the 400X days or 250R days. You ain't taking those bikes out and doing anything with them. So they've made improvements, but not very much improvements. You know, if I, you know, I couldn't imagine what we'd be riding right now if they didn't make the production rule and all these hybrids had still been developing. You know, you probably have 60-inch wide, fully independent, you know, who knows what kind of engine, but, you know, all this cool stuff that the off-road trucks have, we might have had that by now, but nobody would ever make money doing it that way. At the same time, is if the manufacturers would not have pulled out, the economy had not hit us, what would we be riding on production bikes? Probably something pretty cool as well. I don't know. That 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 Yamaha is a pretty good base platform to start with. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I'm still a diehard Honda guy. And and I think that on the West Coast here in the desert, we have a, a pretty much unbeatable platform. But that Yamaha has got some real real potential yeah that's what i was saying we had had a friend that took one to florida and i rode it some just just because i got tired of changing you know working on my bike all the time down there in the sand and rodney gentry bought his over me and him rode a couple years ago when i was down there training for the winter and the stock yamaha was all we had was wheels and tires i'm trying to think uh i think that's it wheel no nerf bars wheels tires nerf bars rode to piss out thing for 20 hours change the old wash it up every once in a while. Didn't have to check bolts. Nothing broke on it. Now, we're not doing 90-foot triples and stuff on it, but uh, you're, you're right. No transmission problems, no engine problems, no chassis problems. Just rode the crap out of it. And we had just as much fun, you know, because about three four weeks before the first race, I had to get my race bikes out and start riding them. And I'm like, oh, I'm so tired of working this thing. The axle's always coming loose. Everything's falling apart on it, you know? And it's brand new. But because it, it's that much faster, that much more, you're throwing that much harder in turns, stuff just comes loose on it. Right. Right. I mean... At the, at the pro level, the what it takes to keep a machine rolling is incredible. Yeah, people just don't, they just don't understand. It's it's a full-time job. I had full-time mechanics here the whole time I was racing, you know, it's, especially after I had the first few years after the amateur days. But you can't, you're, you're not going to work on a bike for, you know, 40 hours throughout the week and then want to go ride it every day. You're going to ride maybe once a weekend because then you got to go work on it or anything. You, for every one hour you ride, you got to work 10 hours. <laughs> so, and then you got to build more bikes and then, when, all, when it got really big, you know, like I said, they'd send me 10, 12 bikes a year. So I'd build four race bikes, four practice bikes, a couple of test bikes. And I'm not going to build that stuff. I'd go out there and make sure my mechanics do what he's supposed to do. But I'm, I'm trying to ride, train, eat, sleep, and, you know, negotiate with sponsors and trying to take my guy happy. You know, it's a lot of work that people have no idea how much, how much effort it goes into it. When you, when you were talking about that, how did social media come into it for you? Did, did that help you or, or because you're, ages behind the curve um did you struggle with that well i think i i struggled with it a little bit not not so much as um my age and i'm not saying i'm not old <laughs> i'm saying the the what happened was okay we had these magazines out forever you know we'd all look at the magazines we couldn't wait to see what's coming out you know and so now especially myself and a few of the other guys were making a little bit of money racing we'd see those magazines we could go to hey i'm going to go to whatever sponsor did it, you know, Canyon Air Filters or Duncan Racing or, you know, PP or especially the bigger sponsors that, you know, Maxis and you know, the guys actually paid some some real money. And we'd look at those magazines, right, and say, you know, I've been in like 55 colored pictures in this magazine. I've been on, you know, 19 full color page ads. And you get a price of what that costs to put in dirt wheels or aging fold action, whatever it is. And let's say that price, if you retailed it out, was, you know, 290 grand to go to advertise that. Okay, give me a tenth of that. 
okay, so now I'm getting $29,000 from Maxis. So when, it's, so when social media kicked off, that nobody was doing that yet. You didn't know how, you see people nowadays, they're doing the podcast, they're doing the, the YouTube stuff, they're doing all this, you know, TikTok. All, once you start getting, you got to get a lot of followers. You know, I talked about this last week, you got to get a lot of followers, and then YouTube will start paying you. But, you know, we I don't know that we have a following in the ATV world to get that kind of numbers to actually get paid. So it hasn't transitioned over to your Joel Hedricks and your Weenins and the Browns. And, you know, it's it's all wide open social media now. But to transition over to what we were getting paid through the magazine coverage and, and some TV coverage here and there, and then, of course, your track coverage to social media, we haven't crossed that or gapped that bridge yet to figure out how we can make money on social media through ATV racing. Guys are trying it, but it just ain't big enough right now, you know, Maybe it was ten years ago, but of course we didn't have the social media we had ten years ago. So it's it's a gap we got to try to you know bridge that gap a little bit. To hopefully, these guys can start making some money again. So when not to change the subject again, uh, but when you do your schools, how much of this sponsorship uh, information do you pass along um, to your students so that they would understand what it takes to be sponsored and and how to make themselves look better and look, make their sponsors look better. Well, at the end of each school now, the schools are, I mean, they're slim, slim to none right now. The whole sport's, you know, pretty slim right now. Um, but yeah, I've done them for 20, gosh, term is line here, 28, 29 years. And the last couple of years has been real slow, but when it was great, I'd say all right through the meat of the, you know, the age racing was huge. You know, the guys would come there, we'd go through the whole school. Now I've got, I've got five different kinds of schools I'm doing now, but your average school, your regular riding school, it's a two-day school. At the end of the school, I'd give them a package. Okay, so it'd have most of my sponsors on there, and I have some free product on there. And so, you know, let's, for example, you can go to uh, Motul and, you know, give them 75 bucks, you'll get $500 worth of product. Well, I would show them how to do that, make, make all the contact information, and I'd give each one of these the, the right contact for that sponsor. Of course, give them pretty stickers and all that stuff and shows here's what they do. And to show just because you went to my riding school, you just saved about $750 on sponsored products that you're probably going to buy anyway. So it would have cost you 2500 bucks to buy all this stuff. And they're like, oh, you can get sponsored doing this? I'm like, well, you're not going to get paid to do it, but maybe you can get a discount. So the mom and dad are going to the local hunter shop and spending, you know, $35 on some chain lube, some oil. Now they can spend $12 on it. And you can take that extra $20 and put gas in the truck to go to the race. You know, so I, I would try to show them that kind of stuff because it was out there, but you know, it, um, there was a lot to it for sure. And how long, how long did it take you to understand that? <laughs> well, I had to learn all that on my own. So that's what I went to school for business. And like I said, uh, so I'd say, man, it's probably, I was, it probably six, five, six years, you know, because I was just hustling when I was younger. Because mom and dad got the divorce by, by oh fourth or fifth year racing, and of course they had to do their own thing. And dad looks at me, he goes, "Well, you gonna have to buy the house, and um, or we're gonna quit racing." <laughs> so I had to figure out how to live on. You know, me and dad had to figure out how he was gonna move out, and mom already left, and we we're trying to figure out how we're gonna do this. And so I had to start hustling, trying to figure out how to get sponsors. I don't, you know, of course, you know, Wild knows at CT Racing, he was one of my first sponsors, and. And uh, I've called him up every week because I see his ads in there. And I see Charlie Shepard and I see, um, I can't remember who else from him at the time, maybe Doug and uh, Earhart or something. So, and uh, I'd see these ads and I'd call Alan and say, hey, what, what can I do to come out there and, and race for you and show you how, you know, I'm good at it. And I told him, I'd, I'd, I'd paint my, your name or shave your CT in the side of my head or whatever. You know, we've jokingly done that. And I'd be doing this because me bugging a piss out of him, he, he, he uh, got me Charlie Shepard's practice bike for the Mickey Thompson Stadium Off-Road Series. 
for Candlestick Park in San San Francisco. He said, "Come on out here, and so you'll shut up, and I'll let you ride his practice bike." And uh, we went to the last, I think it's the last race of the year. Rode up there, rode up there with uh, Greg Stewart with Scatrick, him and old Jimmy Thompson, and and I think I got like fifth or something on the practice bike. He goes, "I'll be damned, you did pretty good." So the next year, he built me a new. I think the time was JP new JP bike. And I went one Anaheim one, I won uh, San Diego. So I mean, you probably remember in the headlines, I think it was Dirt Wheels, Hillbilly Doubles, the Mickey Thompson Stadium off road series. <laughs> I won the first two races. So if it wasn't for me trying to hustle and solicit and just bug the piss out out of those, I would have never got that shot, which would have never got me to win. And that kind of snowballed my whole career right there. That's pretty awesome. What year was that? Uh, 94 is the year I won the first two back to back. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I still got that trophy out there. I still got the gear out there. Then I got the pictures and me and old Freddie Shepard and Team Bad Boy gear. You probably remember all that. And yep. And uh, it was sixty thousand people there because that's right before the hurricane hit or the hurricane, the uh, earthquake hit. And then after that, they remodeled. I think I don't think it holds that much no more. But yeah, when you're on it, I'm out there watching. Of course, I'm what about twenty years old, some redneck rookie kid out there, ball by myself, no family, and I'm going around the track looking at this diamond screen. Oh, man, that's me up there. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh shit, I'm gonna crash. You know, I just thought it was the coolest thing, man. I just beat all my heroes and just won the first race. There can't be a drug out there to make you feel any higher than that. No, and I don't. I don't think there was any better racing than Mickey's. I loved going to Mickey's because it was one day clean. Your stuff didn't get tore up that much. Yep. And and it was always kept, I would say, super fair. Yeah, just on TV. Yes, being covered. It. I mean, you you got to be on TV to make you know where the money's at. And if if they had, that net ever went away, man, those don't tell what kind of money we'd all be making. But yeah, that was great times, easy tracks, good competition, and you know it was it was definitely a show. Oh uh, yeah, it was a show, but it was it was just awesome. I mean, because you know you go to the nationals one bad mud race and it could destroy that machine oh yeah yeah i would go if we had a mud race that was it i wouldn't race that machine no more we'd take it apart down the frame rebuild it that'd be a backup bike or another mudder or a practice bike you just can't it's just it gets in everything you just can't it's just a mess yeah how bad and they should you know they should and we've argued this back and forth with the referees and stuff. They should, when it's a bad mud fest like that, just don't race. All the pros will wait a day or two until <laughs> it dries up. It just costs so much money, and these guys just don't realize that. Just let's just wait. I mean, nobody wants to ride that crap, you know. Well, yeah, they, and the promoters don't care. They don't care. I, we, I, Virginia, two thousand, gosh, was fifteen or so. I can't remember. What, it was a mess. It was a just. I mean, you couldn't even get a four wheel drive running track, so they did delay it a few hours. And then everybody kept saying, it's unsafe. They weren't going to give us any practice. We're like, we're not, I mean, who's going to do that? So we all kind of like, we don't want to do it. We don't do it. Well, somehow or another, I got to be, be the ringleader of the boycott. They, they disqualified me and kicked me out and, ban- and gave me a fine and everything. Cause I was supposed to be citing a boycott. So yeah, they don't give a crap. <laughs> so you, you got hung for everybody else. Yeah. I, we was all in a meeting right there together in the, uh, the root river tent. Everybody was talking and the, all the riders and the mechanics and everybody, you know, and uh, but somehow or another, I got deemed the, the problem child. So <laughs> I never yeah. heard that one before. That's yeah. that's pretty rough. I don't know if you remember. I said, we we that same the very next weekend there was a race at Glen Helen. The <laughs> was that uh, I can't remember the series with uh, that Hagsmith and Baron, all those motocross series they were running. It was uh, what they called it, Glory Ran. It was uh, ITP Quad Cross. That's it. I'm. <laughs> Drawing a blanket, yeah. So I came out to the very next weekend. Pro Armor sent me out there just to piss 
everybody off because I, I didn't have no more to race. I was banned from the next race for doing that, you know, that boycott. So I went out there to the race with those guys and just had a big time. That's awesome. How'd you do? I won. <laughs> I knew oh, that was God. coming. I knew that was coming. Well, they, uh, Hagsworth and Baron knew I was coming and they were mad at hell that I was even coming out there messing with the points because they were some fast riders. And I pulled the whole shot. Of course, that was the talk of the time. My big ass pulled the whole shot on those guys. And then they were all pissing and moaning. Well, Hagsworth was faster than me. He was trying to come around me on this downhill and he probably might have made past up, but you know, he was just, you know, I just, I didn't want to pass me. So I hit him. And so he runs off the track. He's MF. I mean, you know, one, one, the moto, and then he comes off the track afterwards. And he, I mean, and I'm like, going to turn around and shake his hands. All she's like six foot long finger. Just give me the bird. <laughs> goes right past me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that didn't go over so good. So then it's a big mess. Brawl is, it, it was a good show for the crowd, I guess. <laughs> no dirty bird strikes again. That's that's too funny. Yeah, I heard a little bro. bit about that um, in one of my other podcasts. Somebody was talking about it. Um, I think it was Justin Nelson was telling me about it. Yeah, he was there. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, where that's where I met old Alan uh, McCausland there. Uh, that's and he and I were all you know everybody shoving and I'm you know it's just a brawl. And then afterwards he started talking to me. Me and him been really good friends ever since. <laughs> He's a good dude. I like him. Yeah. Yeah. So at all these places and all the places that you've raced and all the tracks throughout the years, favorite, least favorite? My backyard's my favorite track because I didn't go nowhere. <laughs> it's always prep waterless, perfect, you know. But as far as tracks, national tracks, man, nowadays, because, um, it, it, you know, I got three or four different decades in there that, that changes. Before, they messed up Loretta Lynn's. By far, Loretta Lynn's my favorite. I've won there like six times. It was, I just loved it. It was hot. It was rough. It, you know, the, the real peaky jumps. And very, my practice track's very similar. So after they changed Loretta's and they screwed it up, they, long story, but I think the Ironman track up in Indiana nowadays, I, I, that's a good one there. I like that one. So, and the least favorite, oh, God, anyone that was muddy. I, <laughs> I can't stand those muddy races. And then, um, like I said, now they used to be, Red Bud was one of my favorites, but now they brought in so much sand and sawdust, and it's just a nothing but just a nasty, holy train track of a track. So I don't, I'd say that's probably the worst one now. Really? Yeah, and they, like I said, they changed. It used to be a hard pack track, just like one of Illinois. It used to have blue groove on the track. Now they brought all this sand, and it's good for the promoters, but it ain't worth a damn for quads. And you only got six inches of ground clearance, you know? So, right. And, and they try to make these tracks, oh, we're putting split lanes in. Well, that's great. If you make the split lanes even and you prep them every few motos, but you go out there and one line's super fast and the other one you can't only get through. So now you got a six foot wide track instead of opening back up and putting berms back in the track like they should. I mean, you can't score off a turn or go in and block past somebody because you're all in a train track inside or outside. There's no racing anymore. These guys, they, they're fast, but they're not racing. They're just who, uh, who can go around the train track the fastest. I mean, you can't, I want to score off somebody and knock the piss on them, knock them off the berm and get the crowd into it. And you know what? That was good racing, you know. <laughs> Joe, you always had an advantage to, to running into them. Yeah, you're gonna hit a wall. You're gonna hit a you know a little <laughs> a little twig, you know. So that was one advantage I had. That's I mean that's where the dirty bird nickname come from. But you know, I, I, I mean, rub is racing. I mean, me and Italian and Gust and you know even uh, Far. I mean, we got there. We're gonna bump, you know. And I mean, you you got some of the guys here or there that do. I mean, I'd say the last four or five years I raced, and even the last couple of years I went back to watch. They're just and I said, no disrespect to them, but they're just not aggressive enough. These guys are trying to be too nice. 
they want to be the most popular guy at the track, not the most popular guy on the track. I want to go win. And, and I remember whenever it was, oh gosh, oh, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, maybe even 11. You know, I'm making 25, 30 grand a weekend if I win. If I get second, it went to half. I was making 12, 13 grand. If I got third, it went to five. I got fourth, it went to like 500 bucks. And I'm like, so I'm in the lead. I see fourth place like maybe 50 yards back. And if I screw up, I'm going to go from almost 30 grand to 400 bucks. You're going to have to come past me. You're going to knock me off his track and get my money, you know? And the same thing when I'm back here in third, fourth place, I'm, I'm seeing Wimmer or Weenan or Hedrick or Natalia or somebody up here, I'm just foaming at the mouth to knock the piss out of them to get my money, you know? So it's not that way no more, you know? And I know those guys thought it'd be the same way. They want to knock, you know, my ass off the track and, and they better or they ain't going to win, you know? So do you think that the modern day rider is, is not driven enough to make it competitive? No, no. To me, candy asses. I love it. I mean, I mean, it is what it is, you know. I mean, I'll probably get phone calls, texts, and Twitter, you know, later. But, you know, you got to, you know, it, it's, it is boring to watch. I mean, I like all, a lot of those guys. I'm friends with a lot of them still. And But you go out, who, who, gonna, who's going to win? It's going to be Chad or Joy. It's always, there ain't nobody else won unless it's the mud race and Brown wins. And Brown's a hell of a rider, but he's just missing that extra little something. Now, I can't tell you what that is. It could be in his machine. It could be in his training. It could be in his, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I don't spend my business, but. It's always them too, and it's like well, you can't you can't have a good championship because you know if I get you know back when it was big like I said oh four through eleven you might, I mean I I qualified Lenny I qualified twelfth place the last race I won twelfth place I was like three or four seconds off the leader and I still came out and won both motos and won won the event at Delmont Pennsylvania I won the last race qualified twelve that don't happen no more <laughs> you I mean you, Joel can start backwards on the start line he's only a second <laughs> you know so. It, the competition's just not there. So you got to, you sneeze one time back then and you might get second qualifier, you might get ninth qualifier. I mean, it's seconds difference, you know, so. Do you think that, the, do you think that the motor packages are, and the cost of building a pro bike are limiting the numbers? Absolutely. Well, not, not just one bike. Like I said, it's so, I mean, back in the two-stroke days, of course, you know, we didn't make as much money or your average, because maybe that's maybe the wrong way to say it. Yes, the four strokes have made it more expensive. And, but that's, I don't think that's the biggest problem. It's when you go pro, when you go from A to pro or even maybe pro am to pro, now you, it's a job. Now you got to be, you're up there with the big boys. You got to have, you know, a couple race bikes, at least a couple practice bikes. And, you know, you got to have they're all the equipment you need to go to the races. Cause if you don't, if you break down and qualify, what are you gonna do? You, you're not you're not gonna race. You got all these extra parts, so um, you need a mechanic, somebody to help you because you're gonna be so burnt out after five months of doing it yourself. You, you don't want to do it. So when you jump in that pro class, you're jumping there with the big boys. I mean, that's and that's why it's a if you're spending fifty thousand years a pro am or amateur, you better triple that or you know my budget. I always kept up with it now because I did all my numbers. I would spend anywhere from two thirty to two fifty or sixty a year just going racing, and I got everything free got a big paycheck so that's just what i was spending going racing man what was your deciding factor to to retire okay so 2000 get the near i may get the years wrong but you know 2016 i had bad neck surgery i mean i had three broken discs and bulge or three broken vertebrae in my neck and discs are all jacked up and nerves i couldn't even feel my fingers you know and so i had neck surgery and I flew my airplane down to Miami, Florida, me and my wife, to have the neck surgery. Well, 
I died on the table. They like they lost me. It was like a nine-hour surgery, the, just a shit show. And I had to stay a couple of days there because I flew my own plane down. I'm like, well, you can't fly. <laughs> I can't fly home. So, but they didn't finish the surgery because they had all the complications. So then, uh, let's see, what, two or four weeks later, I came here. I went back down there to finish the surgery. And I'm like, I'm not flying my own plane down. That was just dumb as hell. So I did commercially and I raced that next year. And that next, or oh, I tried to race that next year. That next year, I had, um, they diagnosed me with Epstein Barr virus, you know, from overtraining because I was trying to train like I did when I was. 35 and when i went into the hospital i got the flu and then they, the lady had put the needle in it was a dirty needle we're not sure we had a big old it was a big mess with the lawyers on that mess so somehow or another i got a huge arm infection my arm swelled up twice the size of the other one so it took me like a month and a half to get over that so i missed half the racing season and then i said okay this is the last year 2018 i'm gonna go out in style and i went down and i trained me winning uh trained quite a bit and i was ready i mean me and him was having some good battles i'm feeling good you know 40 five years old, I guess, whatever it was. And I'm like, man, I'm feeling pretty good. If I, if I go to Daytona and win, I'm going to retire right there on the stage. And I felt really good. I had all the sponsors lined up. We was, we're going to make a last-ditch effort and just go out in style, have fun with it. Well, four days before that Daytona event, I was riding with a friend of mine who was, was motoring in Florida, and he landed on my knee and uh, messed up my ACL and MCL, and I'm, and I, I'm done. I'm, you know, I don't know how long it's going to be done, but I knew I was done for four to six weeks. And I limped off the track. I'm literally crying. Going, you know, four days for the race. I'm this ready. You know, 2016, 2017, now 2018. I've got injury after injury after injury. I'm like, God's trying to tell me something. <laughs> so I looked at my wife and said, I think I'm done. That's a rough way. To, that's a rough way to swallow that pill. Yeah, I wanted to go out in style, you know. And I knew after training with Weenan and riding with him, we had some fun. And and I, you know, and I got my diet right. And I, I was healthy and you know and i've been down for three months training and you know putting all the time in and you know it just didn't work out you know i was like i'm not just going to keep pushing it you know i've seen too many guys end up a chair end up not here and, and i have nothing to prove i didn't want my championships made all there ain't no more money to be made for me i could win a championship and i'm too old they're, they're gonna hire the young guy and i not get that but i just want to go out you know my pride and, and try to win and i, I would have won some races but I mean, I won a championship. I mean, I didn't care. I just want to go out and show, hey, I'm this old man still got it. Pat myself on the back and walk away at Lurie Lands. Do you think that that time you spent with Chad is helping him now because he's older? And he and I talked about that, you know. And we, we've had some rivalry, you know. We're not like we're close friends or nothing. I, mean, I, I respect him. He respects me. We had some good times. We were banging down there. You know, I'm pissing him off because I'm knocking him off, you know, knocked him off the track a couple of times. And he kind of got mad and left. But, you know, I'm like, you know, you got to, you know, sometimes you got to learn to bump here and there, here and there. And, but, you know, being funny there. But we, we sat down and talked. And he, I think he's 10 or 12 years younger than me. And he, I said, dude, you're in your prime. Take it while you can, but don't push past the limits where you don't get your ass hurt. You got to, you know, you got a wife and kids, another one away. You're, you know, you're making decent money for, you know, what else you going to be doing? I mean, it, you, Take it while you can because it ain't gonna be there long. When you retire from racing, racing, racing will leave you. It, it has every other top pro, myself, Doug Gus, Wimmer, you know, uh, look at Marty Hart, Jimmy White, and Gary Denton. Nobody's made money off the sport after they retire. They're done. I mean, it's not like dirt bikes or NASCAR or all these other sports. When you retire, bye, see ya. I mean, I hate it, but he's gonna be the same way. And I don't think he's famous in a farming. You better get used to doing that because it, take it was here and don't take advantage of it. And don't, you know, and respect it you know he's probably got a few more years good years left in unless somebody else comes up and start beating him you know but but i don't know how, what kind of money he's making well after after he got beat last year 
he changed something in his program because he was a different guy this year. And then, well, maybe, but Joel's program is, you know, I think subpar. I mean, I like, I like Eller, I like Joel really good. Joel went to some riding schools, you know, I like, I like those guys, but they're, they're looking like a big factor team, but they're not getting any high support and they need to be, you know, there, there's some things that I would, I would have done different with our program. You know, they, you shouldn't be DNF on, on the side of the track like they are and doing, making stupid things, you know, few years back it was joe making mistakes and screwing up and just handing you had the victory and now i saw hedrick's bike burn up on the side of the track that don't happen you know you put new parts on every race you go run a pro be a pro you put all the new parts on make sure to do the maintenance run a bike two or three races to get a new one you know you don't and i think it's another reason you went to yamaha this year because you can't keep getting new. there's no new hondas to get so he's running old machines and i mean he's the fastest guy out there and he's got this old piece of machine out there that he should have a new bike every two or three races and it's not there so you can't run these bikes to the limit and have old bikes out there like we used to. Really, I, I I still think that you could you could run a Honda program with the technology that's there. You, yeah, you'd probably have to have a a large parts bill, but I think you For could sure. keep them. I think you could keep them alive, um, working on them. Well, I don't want to say correctly because I'm I don't know their program and I don't know those guys. And I don't want to, and I don't want to say they did it wrong. Um, I just, I just believe in my heart with all the machines that I've built and all the championships that I've won. I believe that it can be done. Well, yeah, you need to start with uh, you know fresh bikes, and if knowing we all know now we've been racing the things for what oh four, so sixteen years and racing these four fifty, we know what's going to go out, not go out. And there's certain things you replace every race. I don't care every moto, certain things, every race on certain things. You take a thing down to the frame put it all back together. Yeah, you could make one. Well, you got to start fresh and have a good parts allotment. And I think that just didn't happen the way it probably should have. And like I said, I know the mechanic. I know all those guys. They're good guys. Know what they're doing. But it's just, you know, there's a lot of moving parts. So then a lot of people underneath that rig probably shouldn't be. I mean, look when all we were running the big big money. And they didn't have but one or two guys underneath all most of the rigs. I mean, Suzuki had three at one time, but that didn't last long either. So you got too many people over there, too many attitudes, too many parts missing. And you got to focus on one guy and win that championship. And there's just, I think there's things they go Yamaha, everything's brand new. All brand new race bikes, brand new practice. And that's probably going to help, but can he ride that Yamaha and get it going as good as he did a Honda? I don't, I don't know. We'll see. Well, yeah. And there's, I think, I think it's harder to make the Yamaha work um, because of the electronics. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you're bad with the electronics or you get the wrong guy, you're in trouble. <laughs> well, if you remember 04, when they first came out with the Honda, Tim Fowers, the only one that Glenn Helen with it. Everybody else was on, I think Doug was on a Suzuki, 18 Yamahas, and then Fowers on his Honda. That's all we had. So I, I was on the Yamaha for like two or three races. And my mechanic at the time, great guy, great mechanic, he said, watch this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reduce the wiring harness and take these pulsators out. I'm like, okay. He fires it up, caught the kitchen on fire, almost burned my damn building. <laughs> burned everything down. So you're right. They're a little tricky on the – uh, the, the wiring electronics, but, um, and you can make them handle. I've had a several of them, you know, I made them handle good, but I personally couldn't get, get it to run like, like my Honda's. Of course, I've got all these years on a Honda and, but he don't need it to run as good as the Honda because he's whole much, he's a little guy. Right. Which the Yamaha's make good power. I mean, you can't, you, you can't say they don't make good power. I think the Hondas are a little faster but those Yamahas, you you have some room to make them rock. 
you know. Yeah, I, we just never spent enough time on them. I mean, we just, you know, they just wasn't for me. You know, we we bit up, we built Suzuki, KTM, and just to see what the competition is. Certainly, else better. We maybe make ours better, but we I, we just never spent the time to get them where I think they should be. So we just, you know, I put one of my guys. You know, I, I kept it here for. I don't know, maybe a year and a half, two years. I'd, I'd rent it out for guys from Argentina or Australia or somewhere come over and want to ride a Yamaha, so I'd have an option for them to rent something. Yeah, I, I didn't. Uh, I got an opportunity to work with Mike Sloan and build his Yamahas for a number of years, and I think that the development of that platform when he decided to go a different direction, um, I think it's a damn good platform. You know, it won him a championship in 2018. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's definitely a good platform. It's now it's the only platform out there. <laughs> so it's like I hope they well, can make I it. I still, I still build. You know, I had a Honda win a championship in nineteen uh, in Best in the Desert. So, um, it, it, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not throwing the bus. Like if you wanted to come out and race in Baja or you wanted to race in Best in the Desert, we'd run a Honda. We wouldn't rerun any Yamaha. Well, no, I agree. I'm just saying for new guys to get into it. And have a new platform. Yeah, there's only one out there. Is the Yamaha. I mean, I hope, right. hope they change that. But yeah, I don't see anything happening anytime soon. Yeah, no, I, you know, none of the trails that I know of, and none of the places where I get my info, uh, they're all cold. There's yeah, no- I agree, hundred percent. I know a lot of the guys over there, and they just there. It was not even a, a hint of nothing coming. You know. Yeah, and, and if if there were, we'd know something. Yeah. I mean, because be- they actually told me, <clears throat> let's see, when was this? 2000. Oh, gosh, this was a while back. I can't remember the exact year. Say it was nine versus 10 or uh, right the last year they started making them. Maybe it was 11, 12, whatever it was. They did tell me, my guys at Honda said, you know, you know, I know we just sent you whatever, half a dozen bikes. You need to, you need to get rid of those. I'm like, really? Yeah, we, we got something we think is coming. And uh, I think it was right, right after the economy hit US. So, you know, nine, 10, somewhere in that neighborhood, we got something coming. Okay. And uh, they were trying to, tell me a little more about it. And it was going to be pretty darn cool. And then I got rid of the bikes, you know, a few months go by. I'm like, okay, what we're doing here? A few more months go by. What we're doing here? Uh, they canned it. I'm like, are you kidding me? I just, I just got rid of like three or four, you know, like or brand new stock bikes. Now what I'm going to do. So, yeah. That, so that was, oh gosh, whatever, eight, nine years ago. Yeah. That I was told that they were coming out with a aluminum frame, fuel injected 450, they had two versions of it and one was uh wide one was narrow and it wasn't even a i'm not mistaken wasn't even gonna be called trx it's a whole different part number it was, it was, a, it was an r it's gonna be an r race version so and i i've yeah. seen some drawings and some things about it but you know you know who knows they got it set now last time i went to the honda race department man they had so much crap sitting there you know i'm like like a kid in a candy store yeah, I like I like listening to Marty Hart's stories when he would tell us about you know the CR five hundred three wheeler that that they built, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, the things that that he got to see. Um, th- that's incredible. I, I would I would love to just see the development process. You know, knowing, that, you know, I mean, that's what we've done. That's what I've done my whole life. Is we we take what they have and we make it better. We make it different. Right. Um, right. I'd love to be in the in the meetings going, hey guys, why don't you do this in the beginning? Because we're all going to change it anyways. You know, funny you say that because I I did a ride in school for the whole Honda R and D department there in uh, LA County, LA County Raceway, somewhere out out there. 
And uh, they probably had 30 guys there. They had every bike, Suzuki, Kawasaki, Yamaha, KTM, Polaris, you know, all these bikes out there. And everybody gets to ride each one. And I'm, and uh, so we do the riding school and then they let me ride all the bikes and, and see what I thought about it. And, and just some of the backwards ass mentality thinking some of these guys had on what worked, what didn't work, and what they should do next. I'm like, oh my gosh, no wonder we have the bikes we have now. They're just not, I don't know, not the right people doing the right job. I don't know. That's, I was really disappointed in some of the ideas they had. Uh, I was at a Polaris intro for the uh, the five twenty five S, and we I, I was Doug Eichner's mechanic, and we're standing there, and and all the Polaris guys riders and their mechanics are behind me, and you know Doug's standing there a little bit behind me, but. For some reason, I'm the only guy standing there at the bike when the when the three engineers walk up and the TV cameras, you know, <laughs> off to the side. And I'm like, all right, who's got the pen and paper? And they go, for what? And I go, well, dude, we got to make a list of all the shit you got to fix. <laughs> I bet that went over good. <laughs> it went over like a lead balloon. All right. Like three months later, I was out. I was no longer, <laughs> I was no longer welcome in that program. Oh wow, that's funny. Oh, dude, I I think it's funny now, but you know, I'm standing there during this weekend of deals that we got going on, and the number three guy, the guy that runs the advertising department, and you don't know who any of these. I don't know who any of these people are, and and I was talking to two of these guys, and this guy just happened to be standing there. And I said, hey, who runs the advertising for you guys? And this, this guy goes, well, what do you mean? And I go, well, Can-Am's kicking your ass, dude. Right. Every, every commercial you see, I'm in the hotel. All Can-Am commercials. I didn't see none of your guys' commercials. Right. And they're blowing it up in the commercial area, but I'm seeing no ever. You still never see any real good Polaris commercials. Right. So that that one that so those two things probably ended my deal with the Polaris people. <laughs> That'd be a good thing. <laughs> well, it's not a bad thing, that's for sure. Right. Did you uh, did you ever get approached by any of the other manufacturers? You know, I talked to them, but nobody ever made me a real offer. You know, we had talked to Riley Poosnag, and I talked to Donnie, and you know, some of these guys, and. Um, can am talk to me quite a bit, but nobody ever sat down and said, "Here, here's what we want to offer you." Who's they always, you know, what would it tell you? We want to come ride for, but no, no, nothing, nothing real, you know. And I, I guess because they already had their guys, and then you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, I'm already on a winning Honda. Why am I going to go to this? You know, like like John Italy did. You know, he he went to from a winning program in '05 to '06, being in was battling for the championship. He got hurt, and then after that, he went to Can Am. He didn't do nothing. And he was like a joke for like three years. And so he, my opinion, I don't know what he got paid, but he lost three years of his, his career out there dealing with them. Of course, he got it back and won whatever it was, 11 or 12, whatever it was. But, yeah, it was uh, – I guess that's why they didn't make any real offers. You know, you get, you're winning on a Honda. Why, why would you go somewhere else? Because then at that point, you know, what Wayne Henson told me a long time ago, you never buy a championship. You know, because if I'm winning on a Honda, and I don't care what manufacturer I go to and I lose, it makes them look bad. So right. if I win, you know, and then on the flip side, if I win – it don't make them look good. It makes me look good because I swap bikes and still one, you know? So it's, it's never a good idea to buy a number one plate. Right. I totally agree. You know, 
I totally agree. You know, Eichner's number one in 2006 in the works, goes to Polaris in seven, and end up number two. Yeah. Who did it make look bad? Not him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because he, if he'd have been on the Honda, he'd have won. For right. sure. Because he would have won two of the races at the last three instead of DNF in one of them. Yeah. You know, I mean, I didn't, that, that's when they eliminated me was right before <laughs> that happened. But yeah, it is what it is. It, it was yeah. a fun experience. Oh, I, what's but, he doing now? Um, he, he stopped racing UTVs and he spends a lot of time going to the desert and riding mountain bikes with his son. Okay. Still, still works at Fox. Um, I see him, I see him probably every other week. Okay. Uh, he lives probably, you know, 10, 12 minute drive from, from me and not oh, wow. from our shop. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm a big, how you say that, if he likes me or not, because <laughs> we had some, we had some run-ins here and there. I remember it. Uh, I, I, don't, I, a, I don't think if you listen to episode one, I think you'd understand right where he stands. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a Joe bird fan. Yeah. I didn't think so. <laughs> I remember I was out there training for the Mickey Thompson's and, uh, we went to, if I get it right, Barona Oaks or somewhere, one of those SoCal races, just, you know, and, uh, old Don Orozco from MMF, I was living with him and we went out there and I had, I got zero practice. Didn't even know which way the track went. Somehow or another, I pulled a whole shot, and Doug was right on my butt. I mean, he was faster than me, but I'm just dirty bird blocking, trying to trying to figure out the track. And uh, I think I bumped him off the track a couple of times. He came off that – when we pulled off the pits, I don't think he ever pulled in the clutch. He rearing me so damn hard. <laughs> he's ready to fight. <laughs> His temper's only gotten worse as he's got older. But Yeah, that's funny. That's good stuff, though. Well, you know, I mean, he didn't start winning championships until – uh, I mean, a lot of championships, like the, the, the work series and, and some of the score and best in the desert stuff until his late 30s. And, and he was yeah. he won championships in his 40s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, yeah I, it, for, for me, I was just didn't know how to train and didn't have the money. And, you know, my dad worked in a factory. We didn't have no money like some of these other guys that show up in amateur classes and big, big old rigs. So I had to work my way all the way up. And like I said, go to CT and try to shave my head with CT in there to get a ride, you know. So, um yeah, that's why I was so late, a late bloomer, I guess. Yeah, and I, I think that it, I like the fact that when you are dealing with grown men that are paying the bills, that are, are established, uh, I like that portion of the racing, but I also like the portion of getting the green kid that, that you can develop. Uh, yeah. And, you know, so there's, there's pluses and minuses to both of it. When you deal right. with a younger guy, you, you run the program, you make all the decisions. When you deal with the adult, you discuss what decisions you're going to make and decide what the mm -hmm. benefits are. Right. Yeah, there's no perfect solution. No. And, I mean, you, you had it pretty good there at the end where you were the boss and you got to, you got to make all the decisions and where you had a good group of guys with you that you respected their opinions. Yeah, that was – it was pros and cons to that. The, the, you know, the, the pros were I got to make all the decisions. Honda sent me a contract, a bunch of bikes, a bunch of parts and bonuses. So, um, And I got to choose – Within reason, I couldn't. They they had a few things in. I couldn't go get Playboy to sponsor me or Hustler or nothing like that or cigarettes, you know. But I could get whatever shocks and engines and wheels, tires, nerf bars, bumper. I, you know, I controlled everything. If I got any other outside industry sponsor, I'd have to communicate with them. They approve it and go on. But I ran the program, so 
I was a truck driver. I was a crew chief. I was, I had two mechanics and, you know, we were the cooks and, you know, we, we ran it all. So we had a tight knit group there and we, I spent the right money and hired the right shop tuners and did everything, did all the testing. But at the downside, you know, and the other plus side too is all that money came to me. I got my Nerf bar money. I got my wheel money. I got my shop money and you know, whatever money was coming in, you know, I, I would get that. That was my money. And the downside to it is I had to spend money, <laughs> my money to hire the mechanics and pay for the fuel and, and do all that stuff. And, you know, whenever like Doug Gus and these guys would show up to the race, you know, he flies their plane there and show up with a duffel bag. And he's got his 18 wheeler sitting there, his crew chief, coordinator, mechanic, cook, driver, all, they're all sitting there, the rig's ready to go. He does his thing. He leaves and goes home. He's home by dark, you know, and I'm still taking up my awning, you know, and, and driving home throw 20, 30 hours. So, you know, me and our mechanic would do all that. So, but, he was making about a quarter of what I was making too. So they, you know, like Suzuki rockstar would get all the energy drink money and the Makita money and the wheel money and the, you know, everybody that came into the program, they put back into the program, but Doug didn't get any of it. Right. And that's the, that's the offset. You know, he didn't get to make really any of the decisions other than about his exact ride, you know, how they set the suspension, what kind of power delivery there was, it, you know, that, that was the only decisions he really got to make. He just put the jersey on that they handed him. Yeah, yeah. Any of the any of the commercials, the toys, anything that they did, he he was excluded because they owned the rights to more like Honda. Even though I own, they own the rights to you know using my name. When I would go do a commercial for them, I was signed a Green Actors Guild. I had a, I was a subcontractor for them, not for Honda. And I would this one commercial, me and Jeremy McGrath did. All I did, I flew out to the private test track in Honda in Southern California, and I made a couple laps around a supercross track and they stopped me. They filmed me kickstarting my bike with my Alpine Star boots on. Uh, it was a, the commercial was Honda Power of Dreams. It showed on IndyCar racing. And all it was was every identity of Honda, you know, a generator, a NASCAR, uh, a boat, a, you know, an ATV. And that was me. All I did was kick the bike over and McGrath was there. He just kicked his motorcycle. So it was every engine they made starting. And I was there, you know, I flew out, flew out one day, did a commercial, flew home the next day. I made 85 grand. And awesome. Doug didn't get, and Doug would do the same thing. Him and Wimmer, he didn't make nothing. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so there were some good days out there. <laughs> uh, I, I knew that you were making money, but I didn't know you were making that good of money. Oh, yeah, I was, I was almost seven figures. I mean, without telling you numbers, I don't want my accountant said it right now, IRS. But, yeah, it was really, really good money. That's awesome. I'm happy for you. It, yeah, thank it, you. Uh, you were telling me about your where you live in Tennessee. Um, if you wouldn't mind, you know, giving me a little bit more information about, you know, is that a is that something that you developed through the time of racing, or did you have the property before you started racing? Well, there was about um, about seven or eight acres that my dad had had when I was younger. That he had had the, the house was here. And that's about it. We, uh, when I was little, we had a barn. I used to store my three wheelers in. It burnt, so we didn't have anything. We had a little bitty podunk track, and I, my my dad was here when he and my mom split up, and I had to take over the house. But then from there, you wouldn't even recognize the place. So I built this huge driveway, these big monster uh, race shops, and you know, workshops and everything. And then I I, add, I bought another seventy five acres, and I built this huge track and I, there's a house that's on the property that's way newer than what I live into. So when I won my first championship, I give it to my dad so he could retire. Nice. That's pretty Yeah. Awesome. So 
it's really, you know, when I started winning, I just, I, it, for me, it worked out where I started winning at the time that the money was there, <laughs> you know? So we started making good money. It was about 04, like 11 or 12. That's where the big money was at. And I just happened to be right spot at the right time. And I was winning and my dad got to retire and he lives in a house, you know, literally 150, 200 yards from me. I see him every day. And, you know, every time I would ride, because I think I bought that for him in 06. So for the last, I guess, for 12 years after, I would, I would get through my moto. I'd ride over there. He'd give me something to drink. We'd talk about the moto. I'd come back over. I'd talk to the mechanic, talk to my wife, rest up a little bit, and do it again. So every day, he'd sit on the porch and watch. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Now, he's the definition of retirement. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm too old to race, too young to retire, and I'm so dang bored. I got to find something to do, you know. So he uh, he watches TV. He had he had surgery last week on his um, on one of his hands. But about three years before, he had to have surgery on his thumb because he had trigger thumb. He used the remote control too much. <laughs> <laughs> He's retired. <laughs> that is too funny. That is too yep. funny. Yep. And, and so you live in the same place you grew up, basically. I've never moved. I was three months old here. My mom and dad bought this place. Of course, we've added on, done some stuff. But yeah, this particular house, I uh, was three months old and I've uh, lived here 47 years. That's so awesome. I'm actually sitting in the house where uh, I grew up as well because uh, my parents uh, have lived in the same house ever since. And my wife and I uh, live here taking care of my parents and taking care of, you know, helping them take care of them. My dad can still take care of himself, but my mom needs some assistance and, and uh, it is pretty awesome. I mean, to coming back to the same place that I grew up in, yeah, it's it's nothing like what it was here. Then you know we used to be able to ride on the property, um, and we used to be able to do lots of things that the neighbors moved in. Some of the land got sold, and yeah, sure. it's it's kind of landlocked with houses now, uh, even though it's it's pretty secluded up on the on the side of the hill. But that's pretty awesome. I'm I'm pretty happy for you. That's that's great. That yeah, you appreciate have. that. Yeah, it's pretty. Pretty good to be able to do that for him because he did all that, all that for me, him, and my mom, and and uh, you know he retired at fifty five and got to go over and don't have to do nothing now. <laughs> so that was that was that was good to be able to do that for him. Do you? Uh, did he travel with you to the races much? Yes, all up to the last few years. You know, I started flying and and he would either not go or he'd meet me there or whatever, or sometimes go with me. But yeah, he he went. I'd say most all the time. He didn't like the flying part. <sighs> Well, a lot of times I would have guys that were here at my, my training facility, whatever, from other countries, and they would pay for the fuel and the parking and everything in the plane, so I'd, I'd let them go. <laughs> so they didn't keep flying airplanes, so. Oh, I bet it ain't. Yep, so. That's awesome. Were, yeah, so, and he wouldn't want to stay as long as we would, you know. I'd, if, I, if I'd had guys with me, we didn't even to leave early, and, you know, they if, when my race is over, he wants to go. So if he, he had to wait the next day for the amateurs to get done, he'd be irritated, so. <laughs> he, he he literally would get there you know right either r- during my qualifier or right after the first qualifier so he'd see the second qualifier i'd watch moto one moto two and i ain't even wiped the sweat off yet all right but love you see you later i'm out <laughs> so that's that sounds like something my dad would do yeah in and out man he wants to go to cracker bro find somewhere to eat <laughs> uh i think the closest crackle barrel here is is um, gosh, probably, oh, it's probably a four hour drive away. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> he loves that place. 
Oh, hey, I've eaten in many of them and enjoy it. Yep. Um, let's get back to let's get back to um, ATVs. Um, when you're when you're running your own program, how much test time did you guys do in the developing in the Honda? A lot, actually, especially in the off season. Like soon when the season was over with, for the first week or so, we test because I'm still in shape. You know, when when I start testing in January, I ain't rode for a couple months. Everything feels like shit. You know, the tires suck. You're just you're beat up. Your hands are hurting. So everything sucks. Plus, it's winter time. You know how to, you can't test shocks in Tennessee in, in January. So that's where I bought the place in Florida. I got me 20 acres down there. We start testing January, February, March down there, and then um, we would do it some throughout the season. If something new came along, we didn't want to do a whole lot of things once the first race hit, unless we were going from a you know a hard pack track to a sand track. Then we do a little bit of testing, but we tried to do it during the moto. So you're actually simulating. That's why I always had a race team. I'd have guys here were were just about as fast as me and if I would pass them, whatever, I let them cut out the whoop section, get right back in front of me. I'd always have these rabbits to chase. So now you're testing during race mode. So you can get a better idea because you know you can slow down and everything feels good. So we a bit of testing. Did you test a lot of motor packages uh, or with different motor builders too to, to find out if you were on the right track or, or doing it wrong? At first we did, yes. But after I got with Dan at DASA, man, he I just we would try different things and it, especially when oh six and seven it was really wide open. We man, he'd had these special heads made up and all this cool stuff. And um we did it right first. But then we found us a good solid package and we'd have two or three different ones we'd end up running with because the tracks are all very similar, you know. So we would stick with two or three different ones unless we'd go to, you know, like a Caleb Moore big open uh race they'd had, then we'd throw a bigger, you know, head on it or something. But yeah, we the first few years we really did. The last few several years we, we had only had like three combinations we like and th that all came down to all the years that you had tested it and you figured out what what you wanted to ride and that's why you ran it that way exactly we would we would try to gear the thing to pull the whole shot and then from there how can we fine tune it where it's still rideable on the track because i'd really come out first and go to second they come out 19th and go to third still got third <laughs> so right that was our right. that was our main goal we want to get out front early especially I am. That was a big chore, and I had the weirdest sprocket sizes on there compared to everybody else's, and you know, just the weirdest exhaust, and just you know, all kinds of stuff we would do different. And um, and then we, my bike was hard to ride, but I, I like I said, I, that was my job. Let me get in shape to ride it, but I wanted to make sure I got out front and then gear it for, or you know, change something here and there for the track if it wasn't quite perfect. Did you ever, did you ever uh, test or experiment with tire inserts? I did. I did actually. And the tire balls never, I wasn't a huge fan just because I had just as many flats with them as without them. Because one would get crooked or go flat and then it just ain't worth a damn after that. And then the foam, I actually like the foam better, um, but you can only use it one or two times. You know, start heating up. You got to, and so what we didn't like, my mechanic hated is you know, all the extra work that came along with them. So, you know, every moto you're changing tires, every moto you're changing clutches. So, that's a lot of foam and balls to put in there. So, but I did like the foam the best. And then, so towards the end, we just went back to nothing. Because, well, when I had the Dunlops, they wouldn't allow me to run on that. When I know those Dunlops were the best tire I ever had because they were, you know, still belted and they were just heat sensitive rubber. And they had these heat, these skinny hog heat warmers for me. And they, I could run two and a half, three pounds of those things and they would just run perfect. I pulled, that year we had 14 nationals, I believe it was. So it's 28. So I pulled 22 or three whole shots that year. 
What year was that? Uh, oh, six, seven. I can't remember. One of those years running that era right there that they had, they come out with these just badass tires and um, just superior to everybody else's. And then when, when it was back when it had concrete starts, they'd heat the, I'd have a generator on the back of the, the side of the side hooked up to my core and my, my tires were getting heated up on the start line. So now I got hot rubber on cold asphalt and I'm just killing everybody else to start then. Wow. Nobody else, nobody else tried that stuff. They would give it to nobody else. The The next year they started giving to more people. And then of course the next year the economy hit and everybody got out. So. Right. Yeah. How, did, how did you fare with the, the seven, eight, nine, economy we didn't feel it to about 12 okay because i'd had multi-year contracts with you know a lot of people and so mine kind of carried through i didn't really notice it you know i hear it on tv and i'm seeing it and, and, but I, we didn't notice it all the factory teams are still there until about 11 or 12 and so i remember i want to say it was from 11 to 12 or whatever the year was i think that's what it was you know i'm making this you know eight nine hundred grand i'm making this rock star money i got all these toys and just you know here i'm one of the top three badasses in the, in the world, I guess you'd say. And uh, the very next year, I think I made like 18,000 bucks. <laughs> my my, uh, my accountant goes, did you quit? What happened? You okay? <laughs> so, no, everybody would drive up and went away. Yeah, it was dead. It's like dead in the water. Man. I'm looking at it. I go, shit, my wife ordered on me. What do we do it again? And I just bought that big blue rig I had, you know, it was several hundred thousand dollar rig and, and, and I made 18,000 bucks that year. I'm like, it's got to come back. So Honda gave me a few more bikes the next year and some parts. I'm like, well, we're not coming back. We're just doing it because we appreciate you and your loyalty. I know you're going to see a race here. This is under the table. Here's some more stuff. And then they didn't come back and I didn't make any more money. <laughs> My riding schools are still doing okay, but you're talking about, you know, was this 14, 15, give or take. And then they just never, it just never came back. And so then my school started dying off because I've only taught, I've already taught most of the people out there and most people can't just keep going, you know? So the last, uh, I guess, whatever it was, 16, 17 were pretty rough years. And then 18, I got hurt, you know, three years in a row. I'm like, you know what? It's time to retire. But been good. Money was good. I was healthy. Made some, got some championships. Got nothing else to prove. It's time to pull out. Right. Well, I remember I, I came home from a trip in nine and had, I, I was, I, I was, freelancing you know i still work for duncan but i would work for other companies at the races mm -hmm. and i would go overseas and be a mechanic for rallies or whatever events i could and i had a, a line of everybody you know i had five sponsors that would send me to the races and and, and send me money and i had those guys overseas and i mean i go to the event in december I call up on January, you know, in January to to make sure that it, we're we're starting the new program and guy after guy after guy, no, 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 and yep. <laughs> and you know, I call overseas. Hey, you got a an event coming? Nope, we're done. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Boom. I mean, I went from, thing. For me, I went from making the the height of my income in nine to bam. Yeah, same thing. I just like a door slam. Like I said, I went from rock star money to dump truck driver money. <laughs> it was bad, and it really never came back. I mean, I did some good years on schools after that, but that's all gone. And so I'm like looking around, going, what in the hell am I going to do? And Doug Gus got me into, into some crop dusting. And then, um, but it takes, it's not easy to get started in anything aviation. You got to have so many 
ratings and licenses and everything. So I'm like, I, I don't have the time built up yet. So I end up buying me a plane just to go to the races in, and that ain't cheap. Of course, you're just a maintenance of those certain things ain't cheap. So then I got my dealer's license, started buying and selling planes just so I could afford to keep the plane I was had, <laughs> keep it operating, you know? Right. Then you just get, you know, and then, then you want to get this license and then your instrument rating, and then you want to get your commercial rating. And, you know, hell, I got like 75 grand in my aviation ratings and going and seeing and all these dealership, you know, licenses and everything. And so last year I went to fly the American Eagle jet out there for the CRJ 900. And they only want to offer like 30, 40 grand. And I had to move to Houston, Texas. I was going to be gone three weeks out of the month. I'm like, no wonder there's a pilot shortage. <laughs> so I'm like, that ain't worth a damn. So I came home, I finished getting my car license, my air replicator license, my pesticide license. And that wasn't easy. And you got to have like 2,000 hours to do, to do all this stuff. 2,000 hours in planes, a lot of time. So we got all the numbers and everything right. And then um, the guy that's supposed to put me in a seat this year, he lost three engines on three airplanes and he just about went under because just shithouse luck and you know everything. So I haven't, and we worked for him some, but it just, I haven't got hired on to do that yet. So I'm like, man, I, I'm hoping this works out. I got a meeting with him next week. And that's what I was doing last week when you called, trying to get these meetings back up together. There's good money in it, but man, it ain't easy getting into it. So it's a whole buddy system, you know? <laughs> so. It's as bad as racing, right? Man, I tell you, if I could go back 10 years ago and go back to race, I'd be doing that again. And that's what I know. You know, I'm trying to do the aviation thing, but, man, it's uh, it ain't easy. You know, you just can't you can't go out and buy a half-million-dollar crop duster and then go solicit some co-ops and farmers. Hey, pick me, because you're new. Nobody's going to hire you. You know, it's like putting a, a foreign pro rider on your badass race on Lobo chassis to go win a Mickey's. That ain't going to happen. Nobody's going to hire you. So, Right. So, so have you ever thought about going racing in anything else? Yeah, I actually was real close to doing the Lucas Oil Off-Road Truck Series and a Pro 2. I was going to buy uh, Todd Duke's Rockstar truck. This was a couple years back, right, right as I was talking about retiring. And I had about uh, 300 grand from sponsors that were going to send me to a racing. But as I started researching, talking to Todd, talking to Kyle Duke and, and Marty Hart, I mean, Marty's still good, really good friends. I still talk to him pretty regular. I got a friend that lives right down the street from him. So um, he goes, man, Joe, to do it right, you need about eight, $850,000. I'm like, oh, really? And so... I couldn't come up with that much more money in sponsors, so I, I just never did it. And the side-by-side thing, I don't really know. I went out to, um, in 18, I flew the plane out to Phoenix. I drove a Can-Am in uh, practice and qualifying, and it was the biggest, not that it was Can-Am, but the people I was driving for, this thing was garbage. They like put me out on the track in a desert car, you know, just, oh, my God. Bottoming out, my back's about to break. I mean, it was just the biggest pile of shit. I was like, you know what, thanks for nothing. And I left, I ain't been back. <laughs> Wow. That you know, I don't know anybody making any money racing side by side, any real money. They might be, you know, I talked to Wes Miller the other day, he goes, Well, I'm doing enough to pay for everything and maybe a couple dollars here and there, but he said, You ain't I, I gotta have a regular job. I can't I can't make a living at it. The only guy I know that, that his program's really, really doing well is Matlock. I talked to Wayne last year about it. He goes, Joe, he said, my program, he said, it's pretty good. He said, but I don't really get paid anything. He said, only all the way I get money is at the end of the season. I get to sell everything, and it's my money. This my money. All the cars I own, they give them to me, and all the parts, and he gets paid uh, expenses and stuff. He said, "But I'm not making any rock star money." But when I sell the cars, are my money. And he's got, as far as I know, he's the one. He's got the best program I know of. Yeah, he's got a pretty good program. I I get to see it from the outside, you know, and a lot of social media stuff. And granted, we live in the same vicinity, so you hear a lot of stuff. And uh, yeah, it, it, he's got a good deal. 
you know, all yeah. of his, all of his desert racing, the ATVs in, in the desert um, paid off for him because it's made his UTV program that much better. And, and he, and I think he made some really wise decisions with some of the people he connected with in the beginning uh, that just made, it just helped him and all the Honda experience that he had right. made his, his UTV program better, you know, and then his wife is killing it. Right. You know. yeah, well, you know, I'm hoping they do, you know, there's the problem with, I see with they, the, the cyber side stuff is you got everybody and their brother can put the helmet and a harness and, and push, push the throttle. And so you got guys like Wayne and Wes or somebody like me, I'm going to go t- negotiate deals with these sponsors and try to get some money. And they're like, well, Jack over here that, you know, works nine to five at, you know, the office, he'll do it for free <laughs> or, or a set of tires, you know? So, and there's, you know, the marketing is not there like it should be for them to really, really make them stand out, you know, cause you go to a, you know, a woods race. Well, they're not going to they're bounce off every tree. You go to a desert race or going slow. You go to the Lucas race. You got these 900 horsepower trucks just hauling ass, and you got these little slow ass five sides out there. So they're not showcased anywhere. And I don't know how they, if they can learn to showcase them, now they would a selling point because everybody wants a side side, and most people can't afford to go get a, put a down payment and make the payments on a side side. And you get a warranty. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons why we didn't jump into it because 98% of the work on UTVs is, is warranty. Yeah. Yep. You know, you, you're never going to be, you're never going to make money as an engine builder, uh, you know, being an engine builder for UTVs. And you got to have a yard, you have to have a place to store the cars, you have to have yep. a huge building, lifts, you know, multiple guys. And you know what, I don't want to be a car mechanic. I'm an <laughs> right, that's what you don't be. <laughs> I bet Glamis is just a shit show out there with all those guys. Like, it's got to be swarm of seven size now. It is, and it's ruined the dunes almost. Really? You know that. I remember having my. I had a Funko sand car. I got it in little six or seven. I got rid of it at eleven. Actually, the, the ex-wife took it as part of the payment I owed her for some money for the divorce. But loved that thing. Five hundred horsepower, man. That thing was so fun out there in the dunes. Yeah, and and the the big the big sand cars and the UTVs. You need a full-on desert bike to go ride yeah. the dunes. Yeah. Long travel, you know, you better have your shocks worked on. You better, you know, you need a steering dampener, put flex bars on there, maybe put a padded seat on there because it's rough. <laughs> yeah, I can, that's why I wonder. I ain't been out there in, oh, God, 12, maybe 12, 13, no, 13 or 14 last time I went out there. Man. You better bring a desert, bring, bring a race bike that's set up, you know, kind of tall and plush. Right. <laughs> because right. it's going to beat you up. Well, hey, I'm sitting here. We're talking. I'm looking at my office. Uh, something I, uh, I think I might have sent you some pictures. I got for every year I was a pro. I've got a number plate hung on the wall. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and and at the time it was like whatever number I earned a year. So I got like an 18. I got a four. I got a nine. I got a six. I got a three. I got a couple ones. I got a couple twos. Nine to twelve. Uh, some sevens. It's kind of kind of cool. I have to send you a picture of those later. Please, please. Then I've got uh, a couple of posters here that when we went to, back when Honda actually had their conventions, they, they had these posters and everybody that was on Team Honda at the time, you had three or four quad riders, four or five desert riders, and of course the Supercross, Motocross guys, everybody's on this one poster. And then for each rider, somebody, this lady would go down through and let every rider sign the poster. And so each one of the, us riders got a signed poster from all the guys that was there. Oh, that's so cool. 
I hope you got that framed. I do, absolutely. Yep. That is so awesome. I'm looking at this plaque right here on my floor. ATV riding school. This was, um, I'm on a 300X out at Glamis teaching a riding school. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. A riding school at Glamis. That's so cool. Yep. Yep. This was in the 90s. I'm trying to find the exact year. I think it was 97. (laughs) How did you come up with the riding school idea? Um, this, this old gentleman at this, my local track where I first started at, he, um, you know, just old red, he goes, dang, boy, you're pretty fast on that thing right there. Well, you'll, you'll teach somebody else how to do it. I'm like, oh, 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 what do you mean? He goes, and his son had been through, uh, Gary Bailey's motocross riding school. He was a two-wheel guy. He goes, you ought to do that with four wheels. You're pretty fast. I'm like, I knew nothing about it. Barely knew what he was talking about. You know, I'm going to teach somebody how to ride. You know, I had no idea. This is in the eight, late eighties, you know? And, um. Sure enough, I talked to a few people about it. My first riding school, I had six people, and I charged 65 bucks. It was like four hours long. <laughs> so now I got, like like I said, five different kinds of schools. They're daylight to dark, and big difference now. I got all these, you know, curriculum that I do, start to finish. It's, you know, of course, over 29 years, how long it's been. You, you learn some things, but that's been, been a real real pleasure, real joy to do. You know, sometimes, you know, when I'm when I was really racing hard and heavy, you know, I'm, I'm coming home. I got people waiting on me for Monday and Tuesday riding schools. Or the very next weekend, instead of training and hanging out with the wife, I'm doing riding schools daylight to dark. Of course, you got to get ready two days ahead of time. You're prepping the day after. You're getting all the sponsors together to, to hand out these packages for everybody. So it's a lot of work. But, you know, I've made some pretty good money doing it and um, enough to buy, you know, some cool toys. But it's dead now. <laughs> ain't making nothing doing it right now. Yeah, but it, I think it's going to come back. I think you're going to see a change um, this year. This year's kind of a throwaway because so many things were, were bad. Right. You know, so n- I think 2021, pro- you'll probably see a change. I really do think you will. We had a really good uh, experience with the riding schools over in Australia, over in South America, over in Europe, you know, and Russia. And I even went going down in uh, uh, Antarctica. <laughs> down there, I did one down there in the bottom of uh, Argentina, Ushuaia. Man, it was so damn cold down there. I was dressed for my cold weather. I'm just shaking, just couldn't get enough, couldn't get warm enough. But it was interesting. Those people, you've been other, you've been in foreign countries. Whenever you go to a foreign country, especially if they're into the racing, man, they they blow it up. I don't care if it's a riding school, they'll roll the red carpet out for you. If it's a race, they got the girls in half naked banana suits and the fireworks and the helicopters, and they really put on a race, you know. Or you know, for me, the riding school. So we. Well, that one particular school I was in, Ushuaia is where I was at, and they wanted, uh, you know, how someone wants your goggles, okay, let me get some of your gloves. Well, now they wanted my jersey, and they, they started buying this stuff from me. I, I sold my jersey for 2500 bucks. They, they bought my pants, my my uh, bike shorts, my socks. <laughs> I went there with nothing but the suitcase that I, <laughs> I wore it more clothes in. <laughs> wow. Well, that's, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's awesome. I got to meet some. I got to meet some guys in uh, in Dakar from down there. They rode a seven hundred XX, and yep. I spent some time with them. And they were they were really good people. Yeah, yeah, they are good people. I had the Mech Racing team down in Argentina. They came here for about fifteen years in a row. Different guys I've known forever, and live they live here at the shop. And they they you know let them have the theater room. The, the, Big shop, him on mechanic got along so good. He'd have one side of the shop and they got to have the other one. So they they bring me a dozen guys a year just to train off and on. I'd go down there, if not every year, every other year to do it. So they, we had a good time. The last time we went down there, 
me and Weenan go down there to teach the riding school. They wanted me down there, and they wanted somebody on Yamaha. So I got him the deal to go down there. We stayed down there a whole month of November teaching, and they give me a week off and then him a week off. The week off, they sent us to their um, their cabin uh, in uh, the Dandies Mountains down there, and it was like this cabin was like, oh, man, it's like a several million-dollar cabin. You have custom fishing tours and just – you know, we go back, he picked, you know, the, the owner of this team, he's, uh, you, you, you look at him, you think he ain't got two cents for up together, but he's owns the company that builds all the bulletproof glass and window or a vest and the windows for all the, the South American government, not just Argentina, the whole country, you know, the continent, <laughs> I guess right. you'd say. I mean, he's got billions probably with a B. So he knew I was a pilot. He throws, we, we get this big Euro 130, big twin turbine helicopter, holds like nine people. And I'm in the pilot seat, and he's in a co-pilot seat. And I got some helicopter time, but I don't have my my, my rating. And but uh, we take off, and I'm like, you know, I'm flying this thing barely. You know, I'm, I'm praying to God I don't kill us, and he'll he'll fix, you know, get save us if something happens. Well, the dude's got one eye, and I noticed that when I got in the plane or the helicopter. And I'm like, where's the charts and logs? What you, you know, because we have it's so strenuous here, and so many rules and regulations in the United States. You got to know certain paths and corridors and vector highways, all this stuff. There, he goes, ah, no problem. I'll just just go that way. And he's like, we're going east. <laughs> I don't know where the hell we're going. He don't know where we're going. We're flying along. It's like, hey, how long you had your license? He goes, I don't have my license. <laughs> no, this is a three or four million dollar helicopter. And he's got my redneck ass flying it. He's got one eye. We're like, got six people on the back. I'm like, oh, we're going to die. <laughs> oh, I just asked, hey, put this thing down. I want out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, there's something else. So now talking about other country. I went to France over there, old German war news from. And uh, I, the guy wanted me to stay there for two weeks and do like, I can't remember, four, say four riding schools, whatever it was. And I had to hire an interpreter because I, I was brushing up on my French, but, you know, it's like barely can say six words. And <laughs> I, I, la- I landed in Paris. I can take the, he, he is me and my mechanic. And so he gives us the, the take the keys to the bullet train. So we get on the bullet train, you know, it's whatever, 250 mile an hour train, whatever it was. We met him in Nims, so we took the train from Paris to Nims. I get off the train. I'm like, where's this guy at? I'm like, we don't know who this guy looks like or nothing. He goes up to me, introduces himself, gives me a, a little Ziploc bag full of $50,000 cash and keys to a Porsche. I'm like, oh, we're going to get stabbed in the back. I'm looking around. <laughs> like, what's we going to do? So we put him in my, my uh, gear bag. I followed him. I got in the Porsche. We followed him to his house. We pulled up through the gates, these big old gates and i'm like we're in a castle i mean shit i mean this guy's got some money <clears throat> and it literally was an old timey what some other king lived there and he bought it from him and he took us to the quarters which is like 10 times nicer than my house and that's where we stayed for two weeks and come to find out this guy is owns french's version of walmart it's called super marche just hell he wasn't <laughs> he wasn't 10 years older than me just super rich just one of those guys you know like i just thought that was funnier hell here's 50 grand cash and keys to porch follow me <laughs> Okay, buddy. You're yeah. You're in. I'm exactly. in. Exactly. Yep. Interesting. Hey, I, was, so. I was in Africa with Raphael Sonic. Uh-huh. And they had a he had a backpack. And he hands me this backpack and he goes, I need you to carry this backpack everywhere you go. Don't let any don't ever let it out of your sight. <laughs> I'm like, all right. You know, and I didn't ask any questions. Right. He just asked for the backpack and I would hand it to him and, and, you know, I would do whatever I was doing and I would come back and get the backpack and, you know, well, it's like two in the morning and I have to walk from the bivouac to the hotel. It's like two miles. Oh, geez. 
I'm the only white guy there. I just oh. got like a sore thumb, dude. And this is a Muslim city and county or whatever you want to call it. And and uh, I walked home with the backpack on, not thinking anything. I'm not thinking anything. I know something's in there, but I don't know what's in there. Right. Well, it had all the money for the whole trip in the backpack. Oh, no. <laughs> see, I see why it's the only thing you say. Well, I left it in the, uh, we locked the van and I walked, you know, like 50 yards to the finish line one day and I left it in the van and the van was locked. And he come across the finish line. He didn't even get his helmet all the way off. And he asked me, where's the backpack? <laughs> I had to go back to the van, get it, put it on, you know. Oh, shit. Yeah, it was crazy. I had some guys, several guys from South Africa come around to school to stay for weeks at a time. Now they're, uh, I don't think they've even raced quads anymore. But yeah, I've had them. It's interesting when you get somebody from another country over here. I had, <clears throat> I went to Australia three years in a row to riding schools, a couple of big races over there. And then they sent their son and daughter over here to stay for a month to race right before the Red Limbs. Long story short, the two mechanics I had at the time were kind of young, they're kind of dildos, but he, um, they, I remember at about 3 4 o'clock in the morning, my the, the, the sheriff's beating on the back of my door. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? Um, you know, just kept on beating on it. Went out there. I'm like, well, who died? You know, like, what's going on? Mr. Bird just, um, we found one of your four wheelers uh, about a mile and a half down from the road from you, burn up right next to a, a, a black pickup truck, burnt to the ground. You know anything about that? <laughs> what? Well, what happened was they were out partying off the two mechanics, the guy, the, the son and the other person, they were out partying and got drunk and they missed the curve and hit, hit the embankment and they flipped the truck over. My quad was in the back. It got ejected out, went like 50 feet past where the truck was. The truck caught on fire and burnt to the ground. Well, they had been drinking and what ran home three and a half, four miles from where the crash was. And I knew nothing about nothing. I didn't even know it took my quad that day. So... The mom and the boy from Australia's mom and dad called me, raised kind of hell with me. I can't wait. We sent our kid over here. I, I felt like an idiot because I knew nothing about it. So that was an interesting day. They needless to say, they finished that next week out at the Red Lands and they were fired. Wow. <laughs> they knew they were gonna get they knew they were gonna get the axe on that deal. Oh, I have I want I want to fire my team. I was like, I need I need you for the next week, <laughs> you know, but man. Yeah. We go, I would go, so I go to Russia uh, about four, four or five years in a row, landed in Estonia, did some schools there in Tallinn, and then uh, we were over across the line. And, you know, this is my first time over there. And there are all these Russian guys over there, and they're all you know, these KTMs and all these, you know, those weird ass motorbikes they got over there. They got the, the motorcycles converted to quads. And I'm trying to set these things up. I'm like, and it was so freaking cold over there. And they're all like, it was a summer day. You know, I'm freezing. They're all like, tough, we're tough Russians, you know. <laughs> I'm like, I want some coffee. I need some two more sweaters. You know, I'm freezing. It's raining. It's sleeting. What a disaster! But end up we end up they end up working, getting along so good. We end up going back like four years in a row. We just seeing how they acted at first. You know, it's kind of like the the Rocky uh, Four movie where he fought the Russian. How badass they were and they hated him at first. Then all of a sudden afterwards they all like you. And you get you come back three or four years in a row. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. I I think that's great, man. We were on this one, I think this was Estonia. But me and Mallory, my wife, was sitting there, and she has her first time experiencing jet lag. And so I was trying to explain her what to expect. She's tired, and it's like her second or third day there. And these guys, I'm out there on the track. I had like 30 guys out there, and a couple of uh, at this particular school, I taught five languages because I didn't teach. I had to hire a couple of different 
translators, but I have five different languages I teach in a school in. And I'm out there doing my thing, and I'm seeing her up there on the on the tower. You know, a couple people are talking to her, and I'm asking her later. So, you know, she acted kind of weird. I'm like, what's going on? What? what, what? She goes, man, you never, you won't never guess what he said. He, he told me. I'm like, oh god, here we go. And the guy was sitting there talking to her. He goes, don't you feel something eerie about this place? She's like, well, I'm tired. I'm jet lagged. He goes, no, just think about it. If you don't, you fit, get a weird, eerie feeling here. She said, no, well, yeah, I actually not to say it. I kind of do. She said, why? What's going on? She goes, you know where you're at, don't you? She goes, well, no, I'm in Estonia. I don't know where I'm at, <laughs> you know? And uh, he said, no, you're this. This is where Hitler had the Holocaust. There's about 10 million or 10,000, whatever you said, Jews underneath us. This track was built on top of the Holocaust, this big mound. And sure enough, it was like a big ski hill mound where they had buried all these Jews underneath us. So I forget the name of the track. But I was like, she told me, I was like, should we leave? <laughs> That's crazy. Yep. Crazy. Joe, I'd like to, I'd like to uh, have another uh, session with you. Yeah. I really appreciate you spending time with ATV Talk. I think yeah. that uh, we could go even farther into, you know, dis dissecting some of your, your race seasons, maybe break it down into 06, 07, 08, so that we can get really in-depth with talking about uh, each race and the series and, and, and how things broke down for you. All the, all the shoulda, coulda, woulda, what, what I shoulda, would. Four more championships that only win. <laughs> and, and when Bird hits Creamer in the face, all those kind of fun stories. Yeah, I can get into that. <laughs> all right. All right. Let, let's do that. Um, I'll hit you up in a couple of days and we'll reschedule. Okay. All right, brother. It was, right, it sounds was good. great. I really appreciate it. it yeah. Thank you for uh, thinking about me and not forgetting this old guy. But yeah, we'll, we'll touch base in a few days and do another one. Brother, you're not old. I remember I'm, I got you by almost 10 years. <laughs> Oh, you go. <laughs> so right. Right, that sounds really good, though. Thank you so much, bud. We'll be, we'll right, be in touch soon. Talk to you soon, Lenny. Thank you, bud. Thank you. Bye-bye. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. San Diego's Body Evolution Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking after your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolutions.org or call for an appointment, 858-571-0160. More than 33 years in the industry building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.